1, 1 to 11. <clears throat> the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planning of the Lord, that he may be glorified, that they, may, <clears throat> that they shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the formal, former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, you shall instead of your shame there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of all the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like, like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels, with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, to God. Thanks Debbie. Boys and girls, you want to come up to the front? We'll pray before you head up to Story Keepers. We pray as we uh, think about the passage Debbie read for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this uh, short series in which we've been thinking about the good news from Isaiah's prophecy, how it's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, that while uh, this text was written uh, hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, that it still speaks into our lives, and it speaks into the lives of each one of us, uh, no matter where on the journey of faith we are today, that you long to reveal yourself to each one of us. For some of us, perhaps for the very first time, for others, just continue to open up the glory of who you are, your beauty, your wonder, your grace, your goodness. We pray, Lord, that today would be a time where we encounter you through your word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a very uh, frequently quoted line amongst Christians, uh, more often than not attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. I'm guessing that it's often quoted because we like the idea that our li- if it's our lives that proclaim the gospel, then we don't have to get into those somewhat awkward situations where we actually have to verbally articulate the gospel to unbelieving, skeptical, maybe even hostile friends. The important thing just is how we live. But if you've been around here for a while, you'll know that I'm not a big fan of this line. In fact, I think it's rather unhelpful and maybe even sub-biblical instruction. To begin with, we actually have no evidence that Francis said these words, no biography written within the first 200 years of, uh, after his death contained the saying. It's most unlikely that a pithy quote like this would have been missed by his earliest disciples. But the bigger issue is this. The word gospel means good news. It's news. To say preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary, makes about as much sense as telling a reporter that she should broadcast the news, but the words are optional. That is, it doesn't make any sense. And Francis actually seemed to have understood this. Not only does it seem that he didn't actually say the quotation that I mentioned, but neither did he live it. Francis was known as much for his preaching as for his lifestyle. Mark Galley, in his short biography of Francis, explains that he was quite a preacher, uh, more along the lines of a Jonathan Edwards or a Billy Graham than those uh, who misquote him would like to think. Uh, Francis preached the gospel, sometimes speaking in up to five villages a day, and he used words because it's impossible to preach the gospel without them. You get the sense that if someone had run that quote by the Apostle Paul and asked him what he thought about it, he would have looked at the person quizzically as if to say, is this a trick question? Because Paul understood that the gospel is news. It's good news. It's news that has content. How can you preach the gospel without words? But the question that we've been asking in this Advent sermon series is this, where did Paul get the content that is behind his use of the word gospel in his letters. In other words, what was his reference point uh, for understanding the gospel? We know that Paul didn't have the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in front of him as he wrote uh, these letters, so that wasn't where he was drawing uh, from. And so I've been making the case through this short series that when Paul referred to the gospel in his letters, his primary reference point was, in fact, the gospel according to Isaiah, that of all the Old Testament writers, it's Isaiah who specifically uses the language of gospel, of good tidings, of good news more than any other. He does so in five places in the book of Isaiah, and in this Advent series, we're looking at three of those places. And so far, we've seen that the good news, according to Isaiah, first of all, in chapter 40, pointed us to the the shepherd king who brings comfort to those who wait on him by means of both his power and his tenderness. Last week we saw in chapters 52 and 53, the good news according to Isaiah also points us to a substitute servant who would come and suffer and die in our place to pay for our sins. And today we come to the third of our three good news passages, which which begins with this verse in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. As Isaiah approaches the end of his book, he brings out onto stage one whom we might call the Spirit-anointed Savior. And what we're going to see uh, through the Spirit-anointed Savior is that an invitation is extended to each one of us in this Advent season. And here's, here's the invitation, here's today's sermon in a sentence, that the proclamation of the Gospel of Isaiah brings with it an invitation to seize the year of the Lord's favor. We're going to see how this pans out uh, in this chapter in three parts. First of all, the Jubilee job description. Secondly, the extravagant exchange. Thirdly, the year before the day. Also that we might understand that the proclamation of the gospel of Isaiah brings with it an invitation to seize the year of the Lord's favor. First, the the Jubilee job description. Before we look at the job description uh, that belongs to this person who is speaking, we do need to ascertain who in the context of the book of Isaiah this person is. Uh, Who's speaking here? Again, look at how it begins. Verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Now, this is not the first time that Isaiah has mentioned someone anointed by the Spirit. All the way back in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, we read these words. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And those verses were a prophecy of a king in the line of Jesse, who was the father of King David, so that here was a king, the king, the promised messianic king, upon whom God's Spirit was going to rest. And then in Isaiah 42, we read these words. Verse 1, Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. God introduces us here to this servant, the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant whom we encountered last week in chapter 53. And he tells us that he will put his spirit upon him. But here's the jaw-dropping revelation of Isaiah 61, that the shepherd king of, uh, the, the king of Isaiah 11 is the suffering servant of Isaiah 42, who is also the spirit anointed savior of this chapter. They're all the same person. The servant king is also the spirit anointed savior of Isaiah 61. Well, this savior then explains that God has anointed him for a specific purpose which, which, which covered under a menu of transformations, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So notice that this Savior has been anointed to deal with both body and and soul. He preaches good news to the poor, and he also binds up the brokenhearted. But one aspect of this good news, one part of the job description that surely jumped out at Isaiah's audience was that this Savior was coming to proclaim freedom. Why was that so significant? Because according to Leviticus chapter 25 verse 10, such a proclamation of freedom was a sign of the coming of the year of Jubilee. That the Spirit-anointed Savior was announcing to God's people 
that he was coming to bring in the Jubilee. Now, I'm guessing some of you may be thinking, well, maybe that was significant for them, but that means whoop-de-doop, nothing to me. What's, what's the big deal here? Well, here's the big deal. Back in the book of Genesis, we're told that after six days of creating, God rested on the seventh. Go back and look at that, chapters one and two, you discover that day has never ended. God's seventh day of rest has never ended, but he, in the text, he rests on the seventh day. And then God gives his people the command that we are to rest on the Sabbath as a demonstration of our trust in him and his provision. But then as you read on the Old Testament, you, you find that the Israelites were to observe not only a Sabbath day, but every seventh year, a Sabbath year in which the land lay fallow, debts were forgiven, and slaves were set free. It must have been an incredible feeling to, to experience that level of forgiveness and liberty every seven years. And then in Leviticus 25, we find that not only was there to be a Sabbath day and a Sabbath uh, year, but also a Sabbath generation. That every seventh Sabbath year, that is every 49th or 50th year, there was to be a jubilee year. And in that year, not only did you rest from your labor, not only were debts forgiven, not only were slaves set free, but any capital that you had lost, any land that you had forfeited, you got back. I mean, just imagine that. The whole purpose was to give anyone who had blown it a running restart, a second chance, a fresh beginning. It was a way to, to prevent long-term poverty and deprivation. So God instituted the Jubilee year, the Sabbath generation for both spiritual rest and economic rest. Scholars have recognized how radical this was, are actually skeptical that the people of Israel ever put it into practice. But now here the servant king, the spirit-anointed savior, is announcing that his preaching of the good news would, like a blast of a ram's horn, usher in the ultimate year of Jubilee. So wind the tape forward almost eight centuries from Isaiah's day. And imagine you're sitting in a synagogue in a little town of Nazareth in the region of Galilee. This is the same Nazareth of which the disciple Nathaniel disparagingly said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And up front is the local boy, Joseph's son. He's become quite famous through his teaching. And he's been invited on this particular Sabbath to read and comment on the scriptures that day. The, the, the synagogue attendant hands Jesus the scroll of Isaiah from which to read. From what we know, there was no assigned reading. So Jesus simply unrolls the scroll, finding the passage he wants to read from. And eventually he finds it, and he begins to read. We read this in Luke 4, 18 to 19. Jesus reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The entire congregation has their eyes fixed on Jesus, waiting to hear his exposition of this text. They are there waiting for what would normally have been a lengthy explanation of the passage. But Jesus, in Luke 4.21, gives a one-sentence sermon. Some of you may be thinking I could have taken some lessons from Jesus on that front in my time here, but it is what it is. One sentence sermon, he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus says, you know the one Isaiah was talking about? 
the one anointed to preach good news, the one to release the oppressed. It's me. I am he. I have come. And the reason Jesus only needed to preach one sentence is because he was basically saying, I am the sermon. I am the good news. I am the spirit-anointed Savior. In Luke's gospel, these words serve, in a sense, as Jesus' opening manifesto of ministry, and he couldn't have been clearer about who he understood stood himself to be. Jesus announces that he is the spirit-anointed Savior who is the servant king who will die to usher in the true and ultimate jubilee. Well, back in Isaiah 61, the spirit-anointed Savior moves right from that jubilee job description then to our second point, which is this extravagant exchange. Now, what he tells us here, if you've been here over the last few weeks, shouldn't surprise us, because as we saw last week in Isaiah 53, the servant was to come in order to swap places with us, to exchange places so that he would take on the punishment we deserve for our sins so that we could have peace with God. Well, here in Isaiah 61, the focus is less on what the servant graciously has taken from us, that is the punishment we should pay, and it's more on what he gives, that which is rightfully his, but that he gives to repentant sinners. Look at verse 3. To grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint praise, a faint spirit. Notice there are three exchanges here marked by three insteads. Well, look with me just for a moment at just the first of these insteads. A beautiful headdress instead of ashes. When someone died back in, in that time, you, you literally covered your head with ashes. This was not just a little cross on the forehead like you or I might receive at an Ash Wednesday service. It was a, a pouring over the head of ashes to symbolize at this time of death that the pulling apart of everything in life. Because you put something in a fire and it gets pulled apart. The, the, the fire destroys the item's coherence. It turns it to ashes. Everything in this world goes the way of ashes. So at a graveside, we hear these words, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. You and I are falling apart. Nobody can restore the energy that is expending itself. It doesn't matter if you work out, if you lift weights, if you play soccer, pickleball, whatever sports, if you're eating well, Take good care of yourself. Everyone is falling apart. That's cheery news, isn't it? Second law of thermodynamics. We all go the way of ashes. And then the spirit-anointed Savior announces that for those who repent and trust in him, there is this promise of this radical transformation and renewal. And Isaiah communicates this transformation or exchange with a simple change of two Hebrew letters here. Changing letters can often make a big difference in what you say. Here, for example, are a few hymn lyrics that underwent a significant transformation through a change of one letter. Lord, you are more precious than silver. Lord, you are more costly than golf. I once was blonde, but now I see. Oh, that with yonder sacred thong. Sure, surely he has borne our briefs. I could go on, but I'll stop there. You and I know how easy it is to change meaning by a typing mistake on our computer. Well, here we have not the change or a drop of one letter, but the switching of two Hebrew letters 
which changes the word ashes to the word translated beautiful headdress. It's as if Isaiah is saying, it is as easy for God to completely change our situation as it is for you and me to make a typo. That he transforms death to beauty like that. And Isaiah then tells us of the results of this extravagant exchange. First, those who repent of their sin, verse 3, will be called oaks of righteousness. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And here's this organic righteousness, which comes from this natural, slow maturing. It's a beautiful picture of the fruitfulness of God bringing into our lives as we depend on him, trust on him. Fruitfulness, it's all for his glory, for his splendor, as all of our lives are to be. And then the second result of this extravagant exchange, he says, is that ruins will be repaired. Verse 4, they shall build up the, the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Isaiah's audience may have been looking for this prophecy to find its fulfillment in the rebuilt walls of Jerusalem, as we were looking over recent months in Nehemiah, following the, the people of Judah's exile in, in Babylon. But, but Isaiah had actually already shown in his book, in the previous chapter to this one, chapter 60, that the vision here is way bigger than that. It's a vision of, the, of a building of a new city, of a heavenly new Jerusalem. And interestingly here, it seems like the mourners of verse 3, the ones with all the ashes on their head, become the repair experts of verse 4. So that the Spirit-anointed Savior puts us to work in this project of great restoration as God promises to rebuild everything that sin has ruined, to make all things new. Indeed, he's already involved in that rebuilding project now. See what good news this is? In the uh, 2015 Oscar-winning film Birdman, Riggan Thompson, played by Michael Keaton, is a man with a past, faded career following his success as the superhero Birdman. That role was clearly the only thing of note he had ever done or was recognized for, and, and Thompson, as a result, was haunted by, by his former success. And as the film unfolds, we hear him just haunted consistently by this gravelly voice chipping away at his confidence reminding him of who he used to be and who he isn't now. And I know many of us have voices in our heads that haunt us like that, that some of us have too easily listened to the voices and the lies that have said, you know, you're a loser, you, you've ruined your life, you're pathetic, you'll never amount to anything for the Lord, you might as well just give up. And then you hear the Spirit-anointed Savior announce, I've come for the poor, come for the brokenhearted, I've come for the captives, I've come for people like you, that you might be called oaks of righteousness, and the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified, and you shall build up the ancient ruins, and you shall raise up the former devastations. And that's good news indeed. That's the voice we need to listen to when the other voices are creeping in. And then the third result of this extravagant exchange comes in verses 5 to 9, and it, it's an expanded people. The Spirit-anointed Savior speaks of the you here in these verses. He's referring to, to everyone who would come to him, Jew and Gentile alike, alike, in this reconstituted people of God. 
So this is a picture of this glad cooperation of former foreigners finding now their place in the life of God's people. You shall be called the priests of the Lord, Isaiah announces. And then you turn to the New Testament and you discover that through Jesus, every Christian forms part of the kingdom of priests to God. So it's a vision of this expanded people. But let me suggest to you that it's particularly when we turn again to Luke chapter 4 that we find some most helpful commentary on how we should understand this vision of an expanded people in Isaiah 61. So Jesus preaches this one-sentence sermon, and the congregation in the synagogue just lap it up. They love it. They love it. Not, Not so much because of its brevity, believe it or not, but because of what they think Jesus is saying. Because as they listen to Jesus through their particular grid, here's what they hear. We're the good guys. And out there are all the bad guys. And we've been promised that one day the Messiah is going to come and he's going to lead us good guys to victory over the bad guys. And lo and behold, here he is. The Messiah is here. And who would have thought that it would be Joseph's son? Well, I never. One of our own, the Messiah. Let's get rolling. Where's the sign-up sheet? I'm in on this. They all love the sermon. And because they love it, Jesus knows they haven't a clue about what he just said. Because they'd basically defined the poor and the brokenhearted and the captives as basically only them, themselves, the ones for whom the Messiah had come. The Messiah was just coming for them. And so Jesus realizes he needs to redefine for them who the poor and the brokenhearted actually are. And he he needs to dismantle this grid through which they've been filtering his words so that they could hear who's included in those for whom the Messiah was coming. And to dismantle their grid, Jesus tells his congregation that he had come to reach out to those whom the prophets of old had reached out to. And he specifically gives them two examples. He tells them that he had come in the footsteps of Elijah and Elisha. 1 Kings chapter 17, God sends the prophet Elijah, not to the respectable, religious, morally upright people of the day. He sends him to bring a miraculous blessing to a Gentile, pagan, idol-worshipping poor woman from the land of Sidon. Jesus says the spirit-anointed Savior comes for people like her. Just in case they didn't get it, Jesus mentions a second story, this time From 2 Kings chapter 5, in the time of Elisha, God heals a man of leprosy. But of all the people God could have chosen to heal, he chooses Naaman, a foreign king, a Gentile, a Syrian. Jesus says, I've come for people like him. And once the crowd get wind of what Jesus' sermon really was about, they try to kill him. Their grid simply couldn't handle an expanded people of God that includes anyone and everyone. Anyone who will put their trust in Jesus, regardless of background, ethnicity, and so on. Anyone to whom the Spirit-anointed Savior offers this extravagant exchange, and he offers it to us all. Lastly, we come then, thirdly, to the year before the day. I don't think I need to tell you that murderous intentions is not the reaction that God was pleased with in response to the coming Savior anointed by the Spirit to bring liberty to the repentant. The response that God is looking for is more in line with what we see from Isaiah, who's a model to all of us as we 
Look at verses 10 to 11. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. The right response to what the Spirit-anointed Savior has done is joyful praise. So that if, if the good news of this gospel reality announced in this chapter has not or is not moving you to a place of joyful praise, my humble suggestion is that you haven't actually fully grasped what this good news is. Because as a result of what Jesus came to do, those who trust in him, we read here, are clothed with garments of salvation. They're covered in a robe of righteousness. Notice that we don't clothe ourselves here. God is the one who clothes us. He saves us. He covers us with a righteousness that is not our own so that we ourselves can become righteous and become these oaks of righteousness. That our salvation is all his doing through his son, the spirit-anointed savior. But here's what this joy-filled praise looks like practically. In the context of Isaiah 61, it means to seize the year. And specifically, it means to seize the year before the day. Look at verse 2 again. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. The Lord anointed the Savior to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that is this jubilee year, and the day of vengeance of our God. But look at this. Back in Luke 4, one last time. Look again at how Jesus quotes this passage from Isaiah 61. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He stops short of finishing the verse, doesn't he? You go, what's the deal? Is Jesus getting a little squeamish about God's vengeance and wrath and judgment? just like people are today? Or did he think he maybe had a better chance of getting out, out of there alive that day if he didn't mention the vengeance part? Well, you know, it's neither of those. Rather, Jesus was making the point that his first coming has ushered in the year of the Lord's favor. And that year continues and continues and continues until someday in the future, a day of vengeance will arrive when Jesus will return and every single human being who has ever lived will stand before him in judgment. That day of vengeance is still in the future, but the year of the Lord's favor is right now. And you know what that means? It means that for some of us here to seize the year translates to this. It means to turn to Jesus, the spirit anointed savior and receive this gift of eternal liberty and life, because in his mercy, he's inviting you today to accept the gift. It's the greatest gift you could possibly receive this Christmas. In his mercy to you, he hasn't yet ushered in the day of his vengeance. And the reality is that that day could come at any time, any time. And even if that day's a long way off, this day of his favor, this year of his favor for you only lasts as long as well, you breathe until you breathe your last breath, and that could come any time either. 
So he says, seize the year, accept the exchange, come to the spirit-anointed Savior who brings good news to you, who binds you up in your brokenheartedness, who proclaims liberty to you in your slavery and your bondage. And for those of us who have committed our lives to the spirit-anointed Savior, the same message comes, seize the year, carpe, di- carpe annum, but it comes with a different application. Context of Isaiah 61, here's what seizing the year, I think, means for Christians. It means understanding that we're still in this year of jubilee that Jesus announced. We're still in the year of jubilee until Jesus returns. And just as we saw that it was the mourners of verse 3 who become the repair experts of verse 4, so it is that Jesus issues this charge to his followers, that from my first coming to my second coming, I want you to live according to the principles of Jubilee. What does that mean? It seems pretty clear that in the New Testament, Jesus didn't see his fulfillment of Isaiah 61 to mean he should set up a, a social program in Israel to implement in a structured way the Jubilee laws. But at the same time, it would be naive for us to think that the principles of Jubilee only apply to us in a merely spiritual fashion. If you go back and read Isaiah 58, just a few chapters before our chapter today, you discover some very practical ways God calls his people to live for the oppressed and the downtrodden. Practical steps to relieve the burdens of the poor and the homeless and the destitute. So that through the New Testament, without explicitly referencing them as jubilee principles, God tells us this is still the way he calls us to live. He says, I want you to be generous to each other. I want you to radically sacrifice. I want you to forgive one another your debts. I want you to create a community where people lay themselves down for the poor, for the brokenhearted. That that's how Christians seize the year. We live as people who say to the Spirit-anointed Savior, because of what you've done for me, proclaiming liberty when I was enslaved, and rescuing me from captivity and binding me up when I was brokenhearted, and because of your promise of this most glorious future, I commit with your help to do all that I can to bind up people emotionally and physically and psychologically and spiritually. I will seek to bring good news to them, which addresses their deepest spiritual needs and also their physical needs. And for all of us, that means investing more than we are probably, investing in the lives of our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers and the parents of children who go to the schools with our children. This is what the people of the Spirit-anointed Savior do, what the people of the risen servant king do. We seize the year of the Lord's favor and we proclaim to the world that we have a vision of the future that frankly trumps any other vision. And it trumps any other vision because it involves the God who through his Son, And the followers of his son proclaim the ultimate good news to the poor and who bind up the brokenhearted and who proclaim freedom for the captive and release from darkness for the prisoners. This, my friends, is the gospel according to Isaiah. So preach the gospel at all times, using words because they're necessary, and then live out its implications in a radical love of other people. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you for the prophet Isaiah and for how he helps us understand what you came to do for us. 
that you indeed are our shepherd king, you are our substitute servant, our suffering servant, and you are the spirit-anointed savior. And you've done everything necessary for our salvation. And you call on us to proclaim the good news to others so that they may know you as their savior too. And then to follow you and be obedient to you with every aspect of our lives. We thank you, Jesus, for coming into this world the first time. We thank you that you are coming back again when you will indeed fix all broken things and make all things new. We praise you and thank you in your name. Amen.